Kia ora and welcome to Tech Bytes. I'm Craig Young, CEO of Tuans, and once a month I sit down with a digital leader and have a chat about things that are important at the time. This month I'm talking to Jordan Carter, who's departing Internet New Zealand as their CEO after nine years. I hope you enjoy this session. Kia ora and welcome to our latest Tech Bytes session. Um, where we're talking with Jordan Carter. So for nine years, Jordan has been the chief executive of Internet New Zealand, the operator of the .NZ domain space, and a not-for-profit organisation who works to keep the internet open, secure, and for all New Zealanders. And he's been there for nearly two decades, and, and he and I have come across each other, you know, numerous times in that in, in that space. Um, and then when I started at Two Ends, obviously we've worked very closely for those last, well, for me, it's been seven and a half years. Um, but now Jordan has decided it's time to hang up his hat. Um, he's seen the internet grow rapidly over the time and the challenges that we face with the internet, which are changing constantly. And he has a strong passion for exploring the potential of the internet and how it can be used to improve people's lives and communities across the world. And so, uh, Morena, Jordan. Good morning, Craig. How are you going? Yeah, I'm doing all right, thanks. So, look, why, by way of introduction... Mm. Can you step back 19 years <laughs> and tell us what you were doing immediately before and then what led you to joining Internet New Zealand in the first place? So it's, the story goes even a little bit further back because I was on the Council of Internet NZ um, as an elected rep of membership from the 2000 AGM. Um, and that was part of the crew that came in to implement the shared registry domain system in a big political fight two decades ago. Um, and I was a university student at the time that I got elected to the board, um, still doing my um, undergrad degrees. Uh, I was then um, working in Wellington um, at Parliament um, in 2002-03. And uh, a colleague in the Domain Name Commission, Debbie Monaghan, was the first holder of that, um, took me out for a drink just before Christmas and said, hey, do you want to come and uh, join the staff team? So I, um, I joined the organization in the Domain Name Commission office working on um, DNS policy. Um, and then a couple of years later, got pushed back to set up Internet NZ's first research and policy officer role. Um, and then sort of worked my way up the system from that. Um, and in 2013, um, was asked to be the interim CEO for a while while the board um, worked out what to do when Vikram Kumar departed the organization um, and ended up applying for and getting the role. So now, nine years later, it's, you know, it's, been, a, it's been a great time, but it's like, yeah. you know, I've got other jobs and other interests in me. So um, I found every time I tried to find the next job from this job, it's so interesting and all-encompassing that I just got drowned straight back into it. So I thought I'd leave and then work out what's next, which I'm still doing at the moment. I can I can understand that running an association, an organisation like we do, it, no one day is the same and then something else comes along and it sort of drags you back in. And you're right, I think you've got to make that decision to move on. Hey, well, look, um, you've seen a fair few really decent large challenges in the internet space over that time. What do you look back and think of as the most challenging ones? Gosh, I mean, the, the big one when I started was the atrocious and expensive state of broadband in New Zealand. And so a lot of the work that we were doing 2005, 2010, was making the case first for the old unbundling of the copper loop, which will mean something to people of a certain <laughs> age, uh, and then um, the arguments around implementing a fibre broadband network um, for New Zealand. And that kind of 
had a plan in place um, thanks to the John Key national government around 2010. Um, and then a lot of attention was going into things like the control of content through copyright law online. You know, the, the Hollywood studios and co were trying to get us all having internet disconnections um, if we weren't so naughty as to infringe copyright in the online yep. world. Um, and the forum for a lot of that was trade agreements, right? So there were interesting fights there. Um, there was a little hiccup in the broadband area in New Zealand in 2013-14 with the, which led to the campaign that we, we were both part of on the copper tax stuff. Um, and then more recently, um, you know, the, the, that, there was a story around the great things the internet could do. And alongside those great things, because it's a system that humans use, there's been a lot of problematic things that have emerged as well. And 15 years ago, it was all about um, botnets and phishing and scam emails and stuff. And I think we passed legislation on the Unsolicited Electronic Messages Act. Um, but more recently, it's taken more of a, um, a harmful turn for people. You know, there's been a lot of the rise of social media and some of its perversions and use and abuse by people often organized by foreign nation states um, and in New Zealand infused by a particular slice of our community's deep racism towards martyrdom have um, said, have seen some quite disturbing content and so on online. And so I think that in the last few years, um, there's been a need to do more and do better in that online harm environment. And the New Zealand system hasn't been working. The, the range of government and NGO agencies that are responsible for those problems haven't been hitting the mark. Um, and a lot of that has been directed at, at Māori, which is um, mm. appalling. And we also had our homegrown terrorist um, incident, not the terrorist, but the incident in Christchurch in 2019 with the mosque's terrorist attacks. Um, and so that was a pretty... Um, big wake-up call, I think, for some of us, that, that these problems are not just annoying chatter online, that they have real-world consequences and we need to be addressing them as a whole of society. So those are some of the big ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, They're well, challenging because there's no obvious answer to them, right? Like, yeah. there's no switch you could flick. They weren't, like, boring technical problems that you could work out a standard and solve them. It was the internet as a, a factor in the complexity of, of human and political life. Um, and so you couldn't just snap your fingers and sort it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna, well, I think we should talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's just take a step back to that 2013 hiccup. Um, mm -hmm. I was, I have to admit, I was actually at Chorus at the time. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just make no comment. Um, but we did see a huge public campaign with significant collaboration as the um, the old axe, the copper tax. Mm -hmm. um, what what was that all about? And, and And how did you get so many groups managed to actually come together? Because it was quite a collaboration wasn't it i think the ease of getting people together was related to how outrageous the thing was that we were fighting you know the chorus had done a deal telecom had done a deal with the government to build the ultra fast broadband network most of it and all of the forecasts had quite a heavy government and chorus investment through um the build of the network through to 2020 2021 and then afterwards it was clear that course going to be making a lot of money um, to pay back the debt with interest and to be really minting it for chorus shareholders. And under lobbying at the time, the government decided to try and implement a $10 a month boost to the price of, of broadband on the network. And that was what we were calling the copper tax. It's like, you know, this network has been bought and paid for. 
the idea of a big price boost now to help finance the migration to fiber isn't necessary. It's all, it's all, it was all in the agreement you signed just a couple of years ago. Coming along and asking now for another 10 bucks a month out of ordinary people's um, household budgets to fund an even more superlative return for shareholders, just outrageous. So we pulled together a coalition working with a few others and with some, um, some really great professional support on the side from a range of lobbying firms and said, we've got to stop this. Um, and then I think the way it ended at the end, that public campaign put a lot of pressure and got a better profile. Um, and it spooked the government's coalition partners such that in the end, it was only national that was in favor of that. Um, and when they realized that, that the parliamentary support for that legislative change had gone, the whole thing um, evaporated. So it was a, it's a pretty feisty campaign. It led to a few, um, few high temperature arguments with people, um, but it was worth doing in the sense that, um, you know, governments can't just act on, on lobbying from big corporates and, and shuffle money their way, I don't think. Um, and hopefully it's made that kind of thing a bit less likely in New Zealand subsequently. It's very much, a, a, you know, obviously, if I now put my two hands hat on, very much, you know, in line with who we are around mm. concern about the users of the technology and the, and the space. So, yeah, that's, um, it was a very public and, and well-constructed campaign as far as I could see. Look, um, we're talking about challenges, but let's just take a break for a minute and just there must have been some highlights in those last nine years that, that you're, you look back with fondly or, or even not fondly, but you, you know they were good points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like organisationally, Internet NZ Group has gone through a lot of change and I'm really pleased with how we've moved from being kind of nerdy focused on the tech uh, world to being a much more people-focused organization. That's been a key kind of thread that I've worked on in my time from the CEO's role, a kind of more normal and professional organization than we were. I think we're seen as a bit flaky and a bit um, kind of chasing the latest shiny thing a bit in the in the 2010s. And so we've, we've kind of moved beyond that. And I'm pleased with that. Um, I'm really pleased with how the broadband rollout has gone. You know, we, we knew that this fiber thing would be good. Um, and that the arrangements that have been put in place were kind of world leading here. And it's proved to be the case. You know, the, the, just look across the Tasman for the contrast of a bad bungled broadband policy versus a, a successful one. Um, and so that's been pretty cool. And I have kind of enjoyed the way that um, the internet's become more and more useful for more and more things. And that's not because of anything that we've done. It's because of the kind of potential of putting um, this kind of open communications infrastructure into more and more people's hands. And so, you know, more Kiwis use it than ever before. Um, the sort of price and quality of the service, both on mobile networks and on the, the course um, and other fiber networks is uh, amazing, world-leading world stuff. Um, and I think also among that, I appreciate the fact that the dialogue around internet policy issues is way more savvy than it was 10, 15 years ago. You know, you had some people talking about the wild west of the internet. And this, you know, it's made of cats, it's made of tubes, um, it's Skynet. You know, the, the, the sort of sophistication of discussion is way better now. And um, that's across government, across industry, across politics. So that's a reassuring thing as well, because I think it means that as we deal with the challenges that are coming on, we're less likely to kind of... Um, lurch into bizarre non-solutions that sound like good sound bites. Um, so those are some of the some of the things I'm pretty pleased about. Mm. 
Yeah. Okay, well, let's get back to the challenges again because there's always challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, just sitting back, reflecting, what are some of the challenges that are still on the table, as it were, like the big things still to do? We all, we all leave jobs, you know, we never complete, but, and I presume the Christchurch call will be one of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Christchurch call was to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content on the internet, and we clearly haven't achieved that. Um, I was always a bit, not concerned, but thought that was a very optimistic goal for the government to set through the Christchurch call, because eliminating anything in the online world is next to impossible. Um, But mitigating the kind of propagation of problematical content that is about it has no merits. It's not free expression or anything like that. It's just um, hatred and violence. Getting that off the internet is an ongoing challenge that hasn't yet been met. Um, here and in other places, the intersection of that kind of online content with real world harms or you know physical world harms is something that the system hasn't got its head around yet. Whether you're talking to you know police or people in um, the Prime Minister's Department or um, DIA, um, that it's, it's seen as too many silos. You know, oh, it's just the internet. Or, um, oh, we'll, we'll deal with a problem when someone shows up at your house with a gun. You know, you don't want it to get to that point. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the system as a whole isn't good at grappling with it. Um, another challenge that is not yet solved was really highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic, where there was a lot of really great work to get people digitized and online. Um, but still, tens of thousands of kids who couldn't get access to proper devices and broadband and uh, internet connectivity um, among all the households that, that could benefit from it, but still don't have it. It's so that inability of government to properly conceive of and invest a digital inclusion thing uh, policy. Um, solving that problem would be relatively straightforward. It wouldn't take that much money, but there is just this curious resistance at the governmental level to take responsibility for that challenge and really solve it. And that drives me crazy because there are some really clear benefits there. The case is more than made for solving this, um, not just in the urban areas, but in the rural areas as well, where I know that you've got a summit coming up later in the year. You know, all of the arguments are so clear and all of the actions that need to be taken are so obvious. And yet there's just blind spot at the political level um, to actually solving the problem. So I think that's a a really unfortunate thing to still say as a challenge. Um, But those are are probably some of the the main ones. I mean, uh, you know, there's always new cool things that the internet can be used for coming along. I don't think there's a a problem with the pipeline, if you like, of, of new and innovative uses. I had a boss when I started who used to say that the best thing about the internet is that 99% of the things we'll be able to use it for haven't happened yet. And I was like, well, we might be down to 98 or 97% now. You know, we've made a pretty good progress there. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think those are some of the challenges. And then zooming out a bit, now the internet came from this era of American dominance in the world. That was where the tech started. Um, the U.S. was a key power and promoter of the, the open and global internet. And in the last 10 years, we've seen growing challenges to that. We've seen the distinct approach that China's taken to having a kind of more national approach to the internet. We've seen the interference that countries like Russia and other countries have engaged with through um, troll farms and bots and so on on democratic politics. And we're now in this situation, you know, the Ukraine um, invasion by Russia has shown but in some quite stark clarity, 
that um, the, the most open and liberal societies um, like ours have opened themselves up to, to vulnerabilities through this open infrastructure. And we need to get a bit more savvy about dealing with that and about engaging with uh, the rules of the road, if you like, in the internet environment. Countries like ours spend a long time just letting the Americans get on with it. And that just doesn't work anymore. And um, we all need to be putting our shoulders to the wheel and making sure there's a distinctive voice from Aotearoa and the forums that shape the internet's technology and its governance. And that's something that I think is a challenge for the 2020s and beyond, because that environment isn't going to get easier. The, the challenges of that kind of nation state action, of cybersecurity and so on, they're going to keep growing. So we can either choose to try and um, do our part in tackling that, uh, or we can just keep um, <laughs> keep our heads in the sand. And I hope we engage with it. Well, then, of course, you get the other side of it, which is the, um, the, the words I've heard of, you know, the oligarchs that are controlling um, social media, et cetera, et cetera. And we, let's not even get started on Elon Musk buying Twitter because that has all sorts of possible implications. Who knows what that will bring, you know? Well, what we do know is that the, the regulatory frameworks and standards on those big companies are not in place. We've seen this massive concentration um, of power in social media firms um, and even at the internet infrastructure layer and very few content delivery network organisations and so on. And for a long time, policymakers got bamboozled by this idea that it's, it's the internet, it's all free and open, don't worry about us, it'll be fine. Um, and you just can't have that with such an important sector of the economy and of the society. So working out ways to regulation that are clever and don't bite off the hand that's feeding us, for one of a better analogy, um, is also another big challenge that we face. Yeah. Hey, look, you mentioned about, um, you know, at, uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa having a part to play in you know the international space and and you and internet new zealand are quite involved in quite a lot of significant international work that we don't really know about and um, so mm. so why do we need to be involved in those sorts of things the, the analogy i often draw on is the same as is about trade yeah and so new zealand has been a long time exponent of a rules-based order and open international trade routes because it's foundational to our economic success, right? We've needed to get goods out to the world. And more and more, the tech sector is a leading export sector. And the whole concept of weightless exports, you know, doing things digitally has grown more and more important. And we've got some amazing tech success stories of companies here offering service to the world. And we need to stand up and be part of governing the way that that works in our interests, which is for it to remain open, Global. We all want to be able to uh, market stuff and communicate with people all around the world on the internet. We don't want it to fragment into a system where you, know, you have to have special permission to be able to send an email to China or where nothing on the internet in Russia works from here or vice versa. So that involves showing up and being part of the discussion. And we show up to all the intergovernmental forums of the United Nations and so on. But New Zealand is always... Um, uh, sort of bold, really light when it comes to um, getting involved with the internet policy side of things. And the interesting thing about the Christchurch call was that it was a step into a leadership role that New Zealand hadn't taken before. And there's something about our, you know, we, this might be patting ourselves on the back as a country, but people see us as kind of pragmatic problem solvers um, 
who know, like people know we're not throwing our weight around because we don't have any weight to throw around. It's just the ideas and the, the capacity to tackle problems in a smart way that we bring to these environments. So we can be quite influential quite quickly if we're there showing up, doing the work, building the relationships. And so I think there's something there. And the other, the other turn that's happening all around New Zealand is, is the rise of child Māori, right? And the, mm-hmm. the concept of embedding fertility relationships in our organisations, um, in our broader society. I know some people find that prospect a bit, a bit challenging. Um, I'm not one of those people. I think it's a, a great renaissance for this country and its future. Um, and that adds a whole additional layer. We're not just another clone of the US or America, of the state of Canada or Australia. There's actually a distinctive perspective from our country. Um, you know, when there's been some discussion and, and said about what would a Tertility or Waitangi-based internet look like? How would that affect the way people relate to each other? I don't know what the answers are there, and that's work for the, the next crop of people at INZ, not me. But... Um, there's just something distinctive that I think we could bring that's about working in harmony and peace and um, being constructive and welcoming um, that I think we should do. And, uh, you know, organisations like Internet and Zed play a role. Government plays a role. I think we can be a lot better at um, telling that story more effectively than we have because it's, you know, one of my long-term characteristics is to be more interested in getting on with the work than talking about it. Um, but, you know, there's, there's stuff that our country can offer there and I hope that we engage more than we have we had a a wonderful speaker at one of our conferences last year who talked about te ao maori being new zealand's superpower and it it certainly does make us unique uh, around the world so look finally let's talk about you mate how have you changed over time i mean especially in the last nine years and have you got any thoughts on how your leadership in that space sort of changed over that time yeah um when I, when I got the job of CEO, I'd never been a line manager before. I don't know if many people know that. So I had to do the double learning curve of learning how to um, manage and lead people and work with a board and, and so on all at the same time. Um, to any of my colleagues who went through that learning curve with me, I apologize retrospectively in some cases. Um, but I, so I've learned a lot about um, dealing with, with staff and supporting people and being able to work through the pandemic as one example. Um, I've become a lot more flexible in, in my kind of expectations of how people work um, and better at acknowledging that just because I've got a way of doing something doesn't mean it's the same as or even better than anyone else's. So getting much um, better at talking through goals and direction and leaving it to people to um, set the detail in place themselves. You know, some people find that um, challenging because they want more hands-on experience, but I'm firmly a, a hands-off um, manager and, and leader. Um, that doesn't work for everyone, but it works for me and I'd be a hypocrite if I was trying to do it any other way. So a bit more relaxed. Um, and also, I guess, more attentive to, I I guess seeing things as a system, you know, like it's easy when you think about these internet issues to try and just see each one as a discrete problem or area of challenge. But I've, I guess I've gotten better over time at thinking through the linkages between the various areas. Um, And one thing I, you know, I was probably a really impatient young Tyro when I sort of started doing this work 20 years ago, definitely, definitely 20 years ago, a bit less so 10. 
you know, maybe it's just the, the joy of aging, but I'm a little bit more relaxed than I used to be. Yeah, cool. Hey, look, it's been a joy um, to talk with you um, again. And, and certainly, you know, I'm going to miss you both personally and professionally as you step aside from this role. Got any last comments or thoughts you'd like to share as we wrap up? I guess the, the thing about this, you know, in the end, we talk about this as the tech sector, but it's all about the people, right? And, you know, thank you for those words. The thing that I've absolutely thrived on the most, even though I'm actually intrinsically a bit of a shy person, so don't always show it as much as I might, is the, the amazing people and stakeholders that you get the chance to work with. Um, that's the kind of fabric of what makes the internet work in, in New Zealand and everywhere else around the world. And so, you know, I, I can't quite say what I'll be doing next yet, but... Um, I know that I'll miss um, that local stakeholder community here in, in Auckland and Wellington and around Aotearoa. Um, but um, that overall, I still think this internet thing is better than not having it. Um, I think it offers some pretty cool possibilities for us, and I just hope we can work together to make the most of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, thank you, Jordan. Um, and you mentioned in there the uh, upcoming rural symposium on the, um, mm. and I can give you the details, the 14th and 15th of June in uh, Kirikiriroa, Hamilton. Um, it's too big an issue to to let go of um, or to give up on. And it's the first time we've been able to get together as people on this particular topic in person since 2019. And um, we're also incredibly thankful to Internet New Zealand as the premier sponsor um, of the event. They've Stuck with us. They wanted to be the sponsor last year, but of course we we couldn't do it due to lockdowns, etc. So um, we're really looking forward to that. So um, thanks again, Jordan, um, and really all the best for what comes next for you on your journey. And uh, please stay in touch with whoever's at Two Ends. And um, thanks everyone for listening in today. Thanks, Craig.